Hi, it's Anthony Fury. Thank you so much for joining us here on Full Comment. For this episode, we're going to talk about everything to do with Indigenous issues today and Canada's First Peoples. It's a deeply emotional topic for many, one that's both torn from the current headlines, but also goes back to the founding of our nation and before. Residential schools, the poor conditions that too many First Nations endure, achieving reconciliation, our new Governor General, the cancelling of Canada Day, the tearing down of statues, the burning of churches. Wow, some of that's pretty divisive stuff. But can there be unity? Will the tensions of today bring better results for the future? We're joined now by Melissa Embarkey for her reflections on this current national conversation. Melissa is a policy analyst with the McDonald Laurier Institute and a member of the Treaty 4 Nation in Saskatchewan. Hey, Melissa, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for bringing me on your show. I mean, so many issues to discuss right now, and, and, and this is really where the national conversation is at right now in Canada. Uh, all aspects of, of First Nations, of the Indigenous conversation, and I, I know you wrote about this in a guest column in the pages of the National Post recently, but how are you feeling right now in terms of optimism, pessimism? I mean, what? how would you describe this moment we're in right now? Right now, I think I'm kind of in a holding place where um, I just don't know how to feel it, it the movement of you know getting residential schools awareness and education started off really well you know we had receptive listeners we were uh, making way in terms of awareness and what these schools were and it just turned into uh, you know violent acts and you know it, it's really disheartening because for most of us who grew up in small towns and in small communities um this wasn't what we were taught you know like we weren't taught to act out in anger or to destroy somebody's place of worship so i'm you know like i, I i'm kind of frustrated too at the same time because this isn't what we want for canada this isn't you know the message that we want to convey to our allies and this isn't um this isn't easy for us as well because these acts also bring um you know they they target indigenous people like myself so you know there's it, it there's a lot going on and um i really feel for the survivors that are out there having to experience this and even for me uh, myself it's it's very frustrating to watch and i hope it gets better before it gets worse. Okay, you mentioned a receptive audience. I'd like to think I'm a receptive listener to to this whole conversation about residential schools. What, what do you want to communicate to Canadians about the residential school system? How would you describe it? Uh, what part of it, what part of the conversation do we need to be having now? I, I grew up in a unique situation in that uh, my grandmother attended a residential school um, her experience wasn't great. You know, she can probably relate to a lot of the stories out there of abuse and, uh, you know, being taken from her her home at five years old. Uh, she didn't go back to see her parents until she was 17. So if you can kind of imagine your life. She didn't get to um, see them at all through that period? 12 years? No, they, no, they didn't allow visits. Uh, they weren't allowed to go home parents weren't allowed to come to these schools and uh, see their children it was it was prohibited so I think wow. there's a lot of misconceptions out there that these children went to school and then at some point they went home they yeah, there's did no go summer home. break like it's not like they were off at boarding school like some people send their kids and they come back for four months in the summer kind of thing none, none of that 
No, it was not like that at all. Like when they were at these schools, they were there permanently until they were ready to go home. Um, and usually that didn't happen until their late teens, like anywhere from 16 to 19. Uh, some of them were kept at the school for working purposes, you know, like some of them did um, maintenance maintenance work and they were kept at these schools for a lot longer. Uh, that was one of the situations with my grandmother. Um, she was deemed a good worker. Uh, they sent her to, um, I believe it was New Brunswick, to a college and she took some courses when she was done those courses, uh, she went back to the residential school, worked for a little bit, and then she went home to her family. So this was after, I'm going to say, 13 or so years. And um, she didn't know who her family was. She didn't recognize her parents. She didn't know her brothers and sisters because the last time she seen them was when she was five years old. So she had no idea who her family was. And she... I could see that struggle over the years because she wasn't particularly close to her brothers and sisters. And, um, you know, you can kind of see that family dynamic play out and it impacted our lives because we didn't really get to know her side of the family either. So that's kind of how, when we talk about intergenerational trauma, like that's kind of the flow of how our families worked. Um, You know, and she, she was one of the ones that believed in education. You know, she didn't really let um, it, that stop her from becoming a social worker and eventually helping her community. So she has one of those success stories where she didn't get caught um, in addictions or she didn't get caught um, in a system that, you know, impacted her life in a more negative way, I'm going to say. So she really taught us what hard work and education was, and she might be one of the very few success stories out there. And, you know, a lot of families, especially in my community, um, you know, they didn't see that. They didn't see the other side. They stayed in their addictions, and, you know, it it just kind of repeated from generation to generation. Um, One of my, like, my community actually has a residential school. And so we've seen kids actually filtering through these schools throughout the year. Like we went to school with them. We went to elementary school with them. So, you know, seeing it firsthand and seeing the devastation firsthand um, is not something that the general public views. And unless you lived or, or were in the vicinity of a residential school, you, would have, you wouldn't have seen these social issues firsthand the way we had. And Melissa, how did word come down to your grandmother's parents, to her family that, okay, we're now going to take your daughter or now it's time, you know, for her to leave, for her to be taken away? I mean, how how kind of prevalent was this? Was everybody just kind of like waiting for this inevitable thing to happen to their family or, or was it kind of random who ended up going and not? I, I understand the policy was to try and get, I guess, as many kids as possible involved in this. Well, with her story, um, they had Indian agents and the RCMP actually patrol their community. So whenever the parents were out hunting or whenever the parents were out of the house, period, they would go looking in these homes to see if children were there and they would essentially take them. Um, They knew, like the community knew what these agents were capable of. So they started teaching their kids to run. Like the second you see, you know, this person coming into the community, you run. Um, And at five years old, you know, like my grandmother hid under a bed and along with a couple of her cousins and they were pulled out from there. 
and they were taken and they didn't care who they took. They didn't care what age they were. They just, if they were there, they took them. Wow. And is that, I understand, we know residential schools uh, lasted for many decades and continued until the latter part of the 20th century. Is that always how things were done? I mean, to what degree has it changed over the years? It kind of changed. So I'm going to say in my mother's generation, because my mom's generation would be considered the 60s scoop children. Right. Um, what had happened in that generation is that you had these parents come out of residential schools who knew nothing about parenting, who, um, you know, had addictions, who had started to get their children taken away. So at this point, it became a choice for the parents. Like, do you want your children to go into the social service system or do you want them to go into the residential school? Because either way, they were getting their kids taken away. So that's how it changed during the 60s and 70s. And that's where these 60s scoop children come into play because a lot of them went into the child, child and welfare system as opposed to going into the residential schools. Um, so it, it was just a, a dysfunctional cycle that continued um, where social services became a part of it now. Now they're deeming parents unfit to be parents and they're taking these children and they're either putting them in the schools or they're putting them in the system. And that's how it, it carried on. Melissa, how do you respond to those people who say, look, it was really a good intention project here, the residential school system. Looking back, historically, we now know it was wrong, but back then, you know, they were trying to do good things. They were trying to uh, provide opportunities for these kids. But yet, Melissa, when you tell me things about how uh, your grandmother being really pulled out from under that couch where she was hiding, pulled against her will, snatched uh, when the parents were out of the house. I mean, that's, that's clearly not, you know, you know you're doing something that these people do not approve of and they do not want to have happen to them. So how do we... How do we talk about the origin story of the residential school system? You know, if it was meant, if these schools were meant specifically for education, we can compare it to a boarding school because boarding schools existed back then. You know, like these children willingly, like their parents wanted a better ed- education for them. So they put them in these schools. You know, it was a consensual thing. When you look at residential schools, that wasn't the case. You know, these children were forcibly removed from their homes. Um, There was no consent. You know, parents didn't know when they were going to see their children, if they were ever going to see them. Um, You know, it it, it was meant not for educational purposes, but it was more like it was meant to assimilate us. And that's not something that you would consider a school. You know, like it was its origins and what it was intended for, are very clear, you know, from an Indigenous perspective, it was meant to take our identity away. It was meant to assimilate us into um, society, Um, you know, and they went about it the wrong way. And these schools did more harm than good to my people. Melissa, what do you make of the broader argument about, for lack of a better term, for assimilation, for the idea that, look, we've got people who are, are not sort of Uh, living together in a cultural sense, in an economic sense. So let's bring in policies to have everybody sort of, you know, live together under all of the same terms. Is that broad initiative, whether it's concerning Indigenous persons or, or, you know, any other different groups of people living together in Canada? I mean, is that something worth pursuing? I mean, it's, 
I, I think like we, if we go back to just what these schools, you know, were designed to do, you know, it, it wasn't meant to bring anybody together, you right. know, like it wasn't, it wasn't meant to, um, you know, m- give us a family oriented world. That wasn't the intention of it. And, you know, it, it, I, I don't know how, um, you know, we can look at this without calling it for what it is. And it was a genocide of people. Like it was a genocide of someone's identity. And it, um, you know, it, it, we're seeing the effects of it today. And, um, you know, it's, I think if it's, I think we need to acknowledge um, its true intention right from the get go and work our way forward from there. Like if we start acknowledging that, you know, it took someone's identity from them, you know, half the people in my community don't speak their indigenous language. Um, you know, a lot of them don't follow the traditional ways, which is at no fault at, you know, to them, but it just goes to show that, you know, we were stripped of our identities and, you know, we're slowly starting to get some of it back today. And, you know, Melissa, you keep using the word family, and, and, and it really becomes clear telling us stories about your grandmother that this really was about uh, dismantling the core unit of, of, of First Peoples society, which is the family. I mean, it really was the destruction of the family unit. It really it really is. I mean, if you look at um, our family structure today, um, a lot of it is very disjointed. Um, we don't have the cohesion that we probably had before. We don't even see that cohesion in our communities, you know, and that's the sad part of it all. A lot of our communities are very, very divided. And, you know, I'm sure back then, you know, at one point we were all one community and one living under kind of like the same, um, the same laws, but we're just really different. And that's, really sad to see especially in smaller communities like mine melissa what was your reaction when the news surfaced that first the kamloops bc community said we have found uh, unmarked graves of the remains of children and then a couple others said the same and we're up to well, well over a thousand now identified this is obviously what has spurred uh, this national conversation happening across canada what was your reaction when that news first broke i, I mean a, a lot of uh, people in first nations communities said well yeah we've been anticipating uh, news just like this for some time now i for me it wasn't surprising because um in the early 2000s we had found 34 or 35 unmarked graves in my community and that was by accident uh they were fixing a water line and when they were digging it up that's when they had found uh this unmarked area like with uh with remains so from my from my part like i wasn't i wasn't surprised and reading the truth and reconciliation uh commission's report it it does reference in there that there are unmarked graves at some of these schools so if we were kind of familiarized with that you would have had an idea that this eventually would have you know come into play um but if you hadn't read that report or you weren't really in a first nations community to know uh the backstory about some of these schools then it would have been shocking like it, it would have came as 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 a shock that there were so many um unmarked graves out there now this is definitely a story that is that is 
been taken by a lot of media, a lot of people on social media. They've taken the ball and they've run with it in, in many directions. There's discussion about, you know, criminal charges now and so forth. I think people assume uh, that, that there's murder in these situations, but also based on the way you talk about your grandmother's situation and what things were like, it also seems like we're probably dealing with just a lot of uh, deaths of neglect, of despair, of just children not getting the, the treatment and, and 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 care and respect and dignity that one gets when one is cared for by your own family, by your own community. What do you believe are the stories behind these tragedies, these findings? Um, just coming from my community, a lot of our stories um, actually came from the survivors themselves who attended the school throughout the years. Uh, you know, we have some uh, we have the older generation that are, you know, between 60 and 80 years old that have told um, stories of, like, I mean, really tragic stories of um, newborn babies being thrown into an incinerator. Um, you know, wow. and we have other stories of, uh, like, a neighboring school where there is a tunnel that led from the school to the staff chambers. Uh, so there was, like, a separate housing location for the staff and there was a tunnel that went from the school to this house or to this housing unit. So we heard these stories, like we heard the tragic stories um, just because the schools were so close by. And you hear stories of some of the younger survivors, like the last one in my area closed in 97. So the, the youngest survivors would probably engine range from about 30 to 40, early 40s. So these are people our age and you know we think of this as a situation that happened hundreds of years ago but if you're thinking of the last survivor like one of the youngest ones you're talking about a 30 year old and you know we we heard their stories of the staff members abusing them you know and so it was a continual um it, it was just a continuation of abuse you know the church handed it over in the late 70s to the federal government. Right. And then you had federal government employees who abused the kids too. You know, it was just a never-ending saga of abuse of these children. My God. And Melissa, when you hear the word reconciliation, when you use the word reconciliation, what does that mean to you? It means, you know, it includes everybody. Um, you know, it includes the Indigenous community, it includes the non-Indigenous community coming together and finding solutions for the survivors today. You know, it, it's not revenge, you know, it's not burning a church, it's not toppling statues, it's not vandalism, because that's not what, you're not respecting the survivors when you do that. You know, if anything, you're you're causing them more anguish, you know, they're having to relive something now in addition to somebody, you know, vandalizing a building on their behalf, you know, and that's not what they want, you know, like these, the survivors out there, if you listen to them and you listen to their humble, you know, approach to things, all they want to do is help their communities. You know, they want to bring services back to their communities. They want to be able to give future generations a better future than what they had you know, and I, I just feel like everything that's going on today, we're we're going backwards. You know, burning a church is not is not going to bring healing to anybody. If anything, it's it's going to cause more division, and it's going to cause 
a lot more hatred towards us because of that act, you know, so we need to, we need to start respecting each other and we need to start having respectful conversations. I want to get your thoughts on July 1st on Canada Day. A lot of municipalities across the country, various levels of government said they're basically canceling Canada Day. Now, it was kind of an easy thing to do because pandemic restrictions were in place in large parts of the country. So there weren't going to be large gatherings anyway, but there's still the attitude of canceling Canada Day. Uh, There was a bit of split opinion on that, but uh, a lot of people seem to go along with the idea. I didn't support that idea at all. I thought this is the one day of the year where we do celebrate our country, our nation, our cohesiveness, our founding as a nation, uh, even all of the individuals who are the founders, um, but I would be happy to celebrate our first peoples at the same time and their accomplishments and their stories and their successes. I, I found that unfortunately divisive, the Canceling Canada Day. What's your take on that? Canceling Canada Day or canceling anything for that matter is the easy way out. You know, like you're, you're letting you know, you're letting cities and, you know, municipalities take the easy way out because if they were going to do one thing, well, they're going to do the easy thing for you. And that's canceling a day. Um, You know, and I think what, what should have happened is that they should have reached out to these communities where they did find um, these unmarked graves and they should have asked them, you know, what do you think is the respectful way to go about this? You know, let, let me get your feedback. But a lot of them just went ahead and did it anyways. And, you know, they're not going to do anything else for the rest of the year. That's the sad thing. You know, they, they, they did the easy thing. You know, it's just that let's just, you know, wash away a day and just call it call it that. And we did our part, you know, and, and you know, if they really wanted to help, they would look at Indigenous issues in their specific area. So if it's a city, for example, do you have a high number of homeless Indigenous people in your city? If you do, can you address that? Can you start looking at this issue? You know, like there's other ways they could have approached it that actually would have been a little bit more beneficial for us. And um, that's why I'm not a fan of canceling anything because it's it, it essentially is the easy way out. Melissa, what about people who are appropriating this issue for their own cause, for their own agenda, or at least they're taking the ball and running with it in directions that, to your point, maybe First Nations people don't even support? And I'm, I'm reminded of what happened before the pandemic. We had the blockades, we had the controversies over the pipelines, and it became this us versus them thing initially where it was, oh, well, First Nations people don't support these pipelines, but we need them for Canada, so us versus them. But then we heard a lot of First Nations people speak up in, in places like BC saying, well, hold on, our, our band council actually wants this pipeline and then we have groups that are are not predominantly first nations people or some of them have no first nations people at all those groups like extinction rebellion and they're doing blockades and they're getting arrested over all of this and i did see a lot of people go hold hold on a second here let's not do this us versus them thing let's maybe we actually have a coming together period and and i thought that was kind of uh, potentially going to be empowering and and, and unifying and i guess maybe a little bit it was right now in this debate i'm I'm worried I, i just don't know where it sits where do you see that going I kind of see it going in a similar direction um, because you have you see different groups taking up this issue of, you know, residential schools when it's not their issue to take up and they're speaking on behalf of it. And they're actually promoting, you know, burning of churches and violence. And all I have to say to them is that this is not your place. Like, this is not your place to speak on behalf of residential school survivors. If you want to have that airtime, 
go and talk to a couple of survivors and ask them what they want because it's not going to be what they're doing. And I just feel like this issue that was that finally came to the forefront because it wasn't something that we had ever talked about prior to this. Like we've never talked about residential schools. It was just finally coming, you know, into the forefront and, you know, some of the issues were being addressed. And then it, it, it's taken the back door now to activists. And that is absolutely not fair to Indigenous communities. And if you're a non-Indigenous ally, you know, just just be respectful on how you're going to, you know, talk about this issue. And if it's not something that's going to bring reconciliation for either side, then maybe hold off on, on speaking on, on it, you know. And I think we need time right now just to kind of regroup because there's just been a lot that's been happening in the last week and it's a lot to take in for anyone and I think if we just have this downtime and think about it because we have a lot more schools to go you know there were 139 in Canada we've only gotten through two you know so we need to figure out how this is going to look going forward like is there going to be more violence or can we start having respectful conversations with each other. And, you know, to your point, you've got First Nations leaders such as Murray Sinclair, who's pretty widely respected across the board, saying he does not approve of this violence and he wants to see more productive paths forward. And then you've got controversially people who are not First Nations who are basically saying, oh, well, yeah, it's understandable. Or, or even one person was was in trouble for saying, burn it all down, a prominent individual. I know Jerry Butts, a former principal secretary to Justin Trudeau, basically kind of excusing, apologizing the violence and so forth. So we're already kind of seeing that duality play out. Do you think as to your point in, in the months ahead, we learn more stories about this, we will be able to kind of, uh, I don't know if temper our response is the right way to put it, because, you know, to your point, the way you describe it, this this should be an, um, an emotional response that, that, you know, people do not take this news lightly, but at the same time to not turn uh, to the things that you're talking about, the violence, the church burnings. We have to, um, you know, like, I think what we have to do going forward is, uh, you know, we have to be prepared for anything. You know, we could have a school that has way more than 751 un unmarked graves, you know, so we need to start thinking ahead and, you know, start coming up with solutions on how we're going to deal with this. And when you have, you know, prominent people out there who are saying burn it all down, or who are saying, you know, it's understandable. None of these actions are understandable. You know, you, we don't go and uh, burn down someone's place of worship. That's just not acceptable in any form or fashion. You know, we don't go burn down someone's house and say it's justifiable. Like, we just, we need to start having different conversations and we need to start, you know, putting more, um, more productive conversations out there. You know, like, we need to start saying, okay, like, how are we going to move past, like, how are we going to move past this, this trauma? Like, how are we going to work together and start, you know, building a better future for these communities? What do these communities need? You know, that might be a question that we can start asking as we're starting to hear of more unmarked graves being found. Maybe we can start asking that specific community, what do you need? You know, like, what, how do you want us to help you? And maybe that will direct the attention from the anger that flares up to actually being productive.
Melissa, what do you make of the news of the appointment of Mary Simon as the new governor general, uh, the first indigenous woman to hold this position, a career diplomat, really experienced individual? Is her appointment to this role going to play uh, going to play some role in, in reconciliation or, or in how we have these conversations? I really hope it does. Um, I hope it opens the door to to more um, to more cohesive conversations. I hope it um, you know I hope it brings the indigenous and non-indigenous communities together. Um, I hope it you know, you know we have we have these high hopes when an indigenous person, especially a woman, going into the into this kind of role, we have high hopes for them you know, and, you know, what we can do right now is support them and just kind of see where it goes because, you know, we've had other governor generals that we thought were going to work out really well and they didn't. So I think initially, you know, let's give her the support and let's, let's just see where it takes us as a country. Yeah. I mean, I see two things playing out simultaneously here. One that she seems like a pretty good choice for this. And I understand she was on the short list back in 2010 when David Johnston was originally appointed. So uh, this is not a person whose resume, whose name is just cropped up out of nowhere. So there's a lot of optimism. At the same time, one wonders to what degree is politics, you know, playing out here. I mean, it was believed that uh, the prime minister picked the former governor general, Julie Payette, for reasons, you know, I guess maybe some political reasons as well. Mary Simon here appointed for similar reasons. So almost, you know, two things are, are simultaneously true happening here. Are, are you concerned about the, the politicization of these conversations? Considering that it's happening now and today, um, you know, like I'm going to have to go towards it being a political decision. Um, you know, when... As an indigenous person, you know, like I, I know how hard it is going into a role like that. And mm. we see, we're seeing different things happening right now in terms of the language, um, you know, and, and we're starting to see um, kind of criticism right from the get go. Mm. So it can't be hard. Like, you know, it can't be easy on her, right. you know, so you know, let's give her a chance. Let's see what she has to offer. And, um, you know, let's support her as much as we can, because we don't know where this is all going to go. Yeah, I mean, is it even fair of me then to really ask, oh, is Mary Simon going to play a role in the pathway to reconciliation and so forth, just because that's, that, that's putting so much on one person, kind of randomly throwing it all on her plate like that? I mean, is it is it unfair to even frame it that way, the way I have? I think, I think she going into this role, I think she knew what she was getting into, you know, like, I don't think there was any surprises that this heavy weight is put on her. Um, and that's no different from Marie Sinclair, you know, like he's a, he's probably one of the biggest voices out there on reconciliation. And, you know, like he knows the amount of weight that's on him when it comes to certain issues. So, and I, and I also think this is why we need more Indigenous representation out there in, in the government, so that all of this weight is not put on one or two people. You know, we have multiple voices out there speaking on our behalf and advocating for us, and it should be like a shared responsibility, you know, but that's, you know, that's another conversation about how that could happen. Do First Nations people in Canada, or, or do enough of them see themselves 
in the, the Canadian apparatus and see a future for them in the Canadian government? Because I, I know there are a lot of debates among First Nations communities and, and, and different leaders about whether or not, well, whether or not they even really think of Canada as, an, as a singular cohesive nation in the same way that a lot of non-First Nations people sort of automatically do. A lot of people do not particularly care for the crown, which is uh, sort of core to the Canadian identity, at least its structural identity, the way it's all set up and so forth. I mean, there are some very, I think, existential questions really that uh, uh, that are present in the way First Nations people talk about politics in Canada. Is that fair to say? It's fair. Um, and, I, and I also think we're doing ourselves a really big, disadvantage um, by thinking we don't have a role in the current political system. Um, you know, like I think, I think our voices are needed, you know, and, and a lot of the time our voices are more grassroots, you know, and if you took some of those grassroots voices and put them in the Senate or you put them, you right. know, you set aside a certain number of seats, you know, those voices would actually change the way decisions are being made. And um, I think there's a place for us, you know, but we just need to figure out how that's going to look. I mean, even when I look at some remote reserves and, and, and some reserves across Canada kind of really have to remake the wheel in terms of having their own health services and other services that for a small town that is not a First Nations community that isn't a reserve would just tap into the provincial system. And I look at a lot of this and I go, well, you know, I, I kind of wish they'd make use of the provincial system because they got economies of scale, they got best practices and so forth. But also I know me proposing that very idea, a lot of people in those communities would say, no, we don't want that. We want to do it uh, our own way and so forth. And I, 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 that's fine. I respect that. But I still wonder, could you not get better services the other way? But I know that whole opening, that whole conversation itself is is probably a pretty controversial one. Well, there is um, actually in my community, there's a First Nation hospital that's about 45 uh, minutes from where I'm from. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a hospital like it's what you would see um in any other non-indigenous community right. the only thing is is that they kind of incorporated uh, more of a traditional space within it and so it's not necessarily us wanting it to look the way we want it to look it's more of utilizing what we have so if the provincial system is working and the way hospitals are designed and laid out you know we will go with it we just need mm. to see um, you know, we just need to see a, 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 a like a traditional component within it. You know, we okay. do need to have like we want to see a prayer room or we want to whatever it is, whatever the community ask is, uh, you know, because we do understand the importance of healthcare and what's currently out there. You know, there's some traditional uses out there, you know, like you, there's traditional teas, for example, you know, stuff like this could be a supplement to your health. And we realize that, but at the same time, we rely on the healthcare system like like everyone else. Right now, Melissa, there's a, a big divergence, I guess, between First Nations communities, reserve land that are are close to economic activity, close to urban areas, and they're really able to you know to benefit from the commingling of all those relationships. And then there's the remote reserves, which which tragically a number of them make up the dominant negative news headlines about tragedies, sad things currently happening. Attawapiskat, for example, is one of the main main examples that Canadians would be familiar with here. How do we contend with the, the challenges that are faced by remote reserves right now? 
I think the first thing that we need to do, and I think the misconception that's out there, is that we're a monolith and that, you know, everything that happens on one community happens on all of them. That That's not the case. And like you said, there's some that are situated near cities, you know, so they have the economic opportunity to open a casino or hotel or, you know, something that's going to bring um, revenue to their communities. And then you have the remote ones where there's nothing there, you know, like there's there's no chance that they would have anything other than the basic services they need, such as a store. Um, and this is where I struggle because each community is different and, you know, they need to look at what they need and what they can offer. And they need to look at how they can bring uh, different forms of revenue to their communities. And, you know, a lot of them, like mine, you know, like we're really small and we do have some smaller, um, some smaller things like a, like a store, you know, like we do have some, we have a bingo hall, you know, this is very small in comparison to what you would see from a reserve close to a city. So we have to, I think we have to figure it out. I think we have to figure out what, what can we use to our advantage you know, one of the things that I, that we have in our community that might be unique is that we have a railway that runs right through it. Hmm. You know, was there anything that we can, can, is there an industry that we can come up with that would utilize this rail system? You know, it's, it's questions like that, that we need to start asking ourselves. And this is the only way that I think economically we're going to move forward. Melissa, we've been speaking about a lot of the challenges, the struggles, certainly very negative, harrowing stories like the residential schools, the histories there. But I I often think about a line that was written by the scholar Ken Coates, and he said, when it comes to First Nations issues in Canada, uh, the tragedies are, are very loud, but the successes are quiet being that you know we don't acknowledge the successes enough we don't talk about them enough and can i get your thoughts just on how i if i'm correct in the numbers education statistics approving entrepreneurship small business innovation i mean there's there's a lot of great stuff happening among indigenous canadians a, a lot of successes a lot of stuff that we should be talking about more and celebrating more am, am i right yeah there's definitely a lot more out there um you know, there's artists that have yet to be found. Like, there's so much talent in our communities that are unknown, you know. And actually through TikTok, a lot of, like, our creators are, you know, starting to be known in- internationally. So I think if we start focusing on on some of the youth that have, you know, accomplished things that, you know, another community um was working towards, you know, we need to look at and start celebrating our, our, our people, you know, we need to start getting success stories out there because like Ken said, there really, there really isn't a place that you can look and say, Oh, here are like the top, you know, there's always a top 40 under 40, or there's always some list out there. You know, we don't have that. And I think if we start celebrating our, like our people, we'll start being role models for others to to strive to get there you know and unfortunately now like the only people that are really in the limelight are politicians you Mm. know people who have gotten roles as an mp or mla these are the only people that we're seeing but you know we have a lot of creative artists out there that are relatively unknown that 
you know, could blow up the art world one day. And I think we need to start really focusing on the positives, like Ken had said, because there are a lot of successful people out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we began this conversation talking about how you want to see unity and you want to see progress and so forth. We've covered a lot of terrain in this conversation. I know there's a lot of people out there in Canada who are, who are just watching the news headlines and they're watching the, those tensions and they're just saying, look, I, I just want what's best for everybody here. I may not be you know, perfectly well-versed in the history of the issues or even what's currently going on, but you know, I want these bad things to stop and I want good outcomes for people. What would be your main message uh, that you'd leave people with who just say, look, I, I want success for everybody. I want success for Indigenous Canadians. Uh, what should they be thinking about moving forward? I think, you know, one of the things, and this is a question that I've been asked numerous times, you know, how do we help? Um, if you're in an area where, you know, a First Nations doesn't have clean drinking water, you know, continue to, you know, write to your MPs or your MLAs to try get a resolution for them or, if you're like water is a big issue like if you're you know worked in a water treatment plant and you're kind of familiar with the workings within you know maybe approach an indigenous community and say hey is there something i can help you with you know there's different ways that we can definitely reach out to the communities and help them and i think one of the things that we can definitely do is ask you know ask your neighbor um and just see where that conversation goes because you never know where it will lead. Melissa, this has been a very informative and important discussion. I thank you very much for your insights today and for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's definitely been, um, it's definitely been interesting and even eye-opening for me. Full Common is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.